message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. Well, if you guys have a Bible, you can open it up to Mark chapter 10. So we're going to be hanging out tonight. And uh, today has been a little bit of a wild one for me. So hopefully you guys can give me some grace. Uh, woke up this morning in Maryland um, at 3 a.m., got on a plane and landed in San Diego at 8.48. Ran, literally ran to my car, lost my parking ticket, Convinced the security guard to let me out. Um, drove uh, a little bit too fast and literally got here at 9.30, walked up on stage, put on the mic, and started preaching a sermon. <laughs> so it's been a little bit of a wild day, wild week for me. And so you guys are probably getting my most present self. <laughs> I've had a, a few hours to adjust. I'm just glad um, that I'm speaking on mercy after the speeding that I did this morning. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's been this awesome week. I, I was in Virginia uh, getting to officiate a wedding for a friend that I grew up with. And, uh, and then earlier this week, uh, my wife and ch- uh, four kids and I were in Nashville at a pastor's conference, which was awesome. Um, it was so cute. We'd, um, when we would have a session, our children would have a session catered to them. And I'd pick up Augustine, who's our three-year-old son, and I don't know where he comes up with this stuff, but he loves to, like, push your buttons. So I'd pick him up, and he, like, doesn't want to leave. He's having a great time. I'm like, come on, Augustine, it's time to go. And I finally convince him to leave. And so I'm like, I'm like, how was it, bud? Like, what'd you do? Like, you know, how, how'd it go? And he just goes, um, not good. <laughs> like, what do you mean? You, just, you didn't want to leave every single day. That was his only comment. Is he just like, how was it today? He's like, not good. Not, not good. So... This is a very interesting week, and but one of the one of the things about that week that was that had nothing to do with it, but it was cute. Um, but one of the things I was excited about is I got to hear from an author and a pastor who I really respect. His name is Pete Scazzaro, and he wrote a or a few different books. The first one I read was called The Emotionally Healthy Church, and I read it um, right after I became a youth pastor. I was 19, 20 years old. And the month after I got hired, the senior pastor was removed for having an affair with someone on staff. And we were given an interim pastor who brought us in and gave us all this book, this emotionally healthy church, and it was amazing. And the premise of this book is written from this pastor who was having this thriving, growing ministry while his family and personal life was falling apart. And it's talked about how God's intent is not for us to be spiritually thriving and emotionally erect that it's the wholeness that Jesus brings. That's the goal. Later on, I read his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and I've now just downloaded his book, Emotionally Healthy Leadership, and all of his stuff has been so good because we live in this culture that even within church just praises success and performance and growth. And some of this stuff camouflages itself as, as reaching the lost or advancing the gospel. And all the while, families are being sacrificed on the altar of ministry. And so I was so excited to get to hear this guy speak. And what was encouraging to me 
is as he talked about discipleship, and we've been in a series on discipleship. We, we, we call it heart renovation, but it's this idea of what does it mean to be an, a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. And we've talked the most amount of time on it starts with the foundation of being with Jesus. It's not about what you do yet. It's not about who you're becoming yet. It's about who you're being with. And this idea that it's within that space that you will begin to grow into who it is. And, and what he was saying was the totally land. So I just want to show you some of his notes on the traditional model of discipleship that many of us grew up with. I think it's going to be on, on your screen. There we go. Traditional discipleship. So and you guys might be familiar with this, um, even within a leadership setting, but he goes, I do, you watch, we talk. I do, you help, we talk. You do, I help, we talk. You do, I watch, we talk, and then you do, someone else watches. You guys have ever been familiar with this before? This is kind of a calm, and it's good. I mean, it works a lot in corporate settings, and, and this is kind of what we grew up with, even I grew up with within the church. This is how you raise up leaders. But you notice the emphasis on doing. It's performance-based. It's, 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 it has to do with how you act. And again, those things are not bad, but he proposed a different way of talking about it. He, he kind of categorizes, this is emotionally healthy discipleship. And I would just call this, this is just practicing the way of Jesus. This is what we should be about. Um, we'll go to the next slide. And it says, and this is how he describes it. He says, I be, you watch, we talk. The initial invitation to discipleship isn't about doing something. It's about relationship. Come watch me be with Jesus. The second thing is I be, you be, we talk. It is about establishing and training up people on what it means to sit with Jesus, to be with him. Thirdly, I do out of my being. I love that line. So it doesn't just stop with being. It's not like that we're just trying to get cozy around a campfire with Jesus. No, no, no. There's a mission to be accomplished, but it flows out of our relationship, flows out of our being. This is what we spent the past couple months talking about. Uh, the next thing it talks about, then you do out of your being, I watch, we talk. And lastly, you be someone else watches. And this is what he puts forward. This is what discipleship looks like. And I would say, looking at the gospels, this is what you see Jesus doing with his apprentices, his followers. And so this, in, in our season as a church, we are now transitioning from talking about what it means to be with Jesus into what does it mean to become like him, to move into his character and his likeness, to begin to start adopting and absorbing those internal things about him, which is so huge. But there is this part of me that's a little frightened that as we move away from the conversation of being with Jesus, that somehow we feel like we've graduated from it and we can never graduate from that. It's our foundation, right? In, in the renovation process, that's the cement that's laid at the foundation of our discipleship is being with Jesus. And now we are talking about the framing. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the change, becoming like Jesus, is, is a work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And it, yes, it takes our work. It, it takes our response to his working in our life. But ultimately, the fruit that shows, the change that shows is because the Holy Spirit is alive inside of us. Last week, Chris gave an amazing message talking about interruptions and how becoming like Jesus is not some curriculum I can put in your lap, right? Becoming like Jesus means that we welcome interruptions. We welcome that along the way, along this path, there are things God is wanting to show us and to change in us. 
And so today we land at this point where we're going to be starting to go through these different characteristics. What does it mean to become like Jesus? What are some of the internal core values we see operating in Jesus? And how do we begin to adopt those as our own core values, our own character? And so today we're going to be talking um, about what, what I would say is is so central and core to who Jesus is, his life on this earth, his death and resurrection. It's, it's all throughout scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, and it is the concept of mercy. So tonight's all about understanding mercy. And so the, the Greek word for mercy that we're going to be looking at tonight is this Greek word elieo. And the elieo is this is mercy that doesn't just mean um, a pity, although it can be translated as that. But Eliejo is this Greek word that talks about a, a covenant-binding mercy that is at the innermost part of God. It cannot be separated from him. And it goes all the way to the most wretched parts of who we are and the wretched parts of this world. It's this deep, profound word that you see translated as compassion or mercy or pity. But you see it throughout the character of God and the character that Jesus showed while he was here in this life. And so we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, when a moment, because there's many, but one moment that Jesus showed mercy. And we're going to begin to hopefully kind of open that up and break that down. What does it mean for us to know what mercy is, to receive that mercy, and ultimately to show that mercy to those who are around us? Uh, but before we dive into that passage, I wanted to, um, I wanted to talk about the, the context. It's kind of set up the story. Um, and if you will, kind of, if we can even use our imaginations, kind of enter into the story. One of my, my mentors used to tell me, the goal is to smell the text. And I loved that. Like to find yourself in the Bible and your senses engaged. What was it like? And let this, this living word truly become alive. And so this story takes place in a, in a city called Jericho. And Jesus and his followers were on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem along with thousands and thousands and thousands of other Jews because it's time for the Passover. Passover to this day is the most holy of all Jewish holidays. And in ancient Palestine, and even to this day, if you were at all able to, you would journey sometimes hundreds of miles to Jerusalem once a year for Passover to offer sacrifices and to atone for your sin and your family's sin and the sin of your people. And so you can imagine without freeways, airports, our modern idea of travel, there was a few routes into Jerusalem, and the route through Jericho was one of the main ones. So I want you to imagine Jesus and his disciples walking through Jericho. By the way, this is where he meets Zacchaeus. And as he's walking through Jericho, imagine the, 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 the sun of the spring in the Mediterranean starting to beat down. Imagine the dust that's being kicked up by thousands of people, the noise that's happening as conversations are going on. And I want you to imagine the songs. And the reason I mention songs is because at the Jericho geographically was the lowest part of the ancient Judea region. Jerusalem was the highest city that they had. And so as they would go from Jericho or any other part of Judea up into Jerusalem, you'd be ascending 
then as you would be making this ascent, you would sing these specific songs that you find in the Psalms. So Psalm 120 to 134, there's these 15 Psalms that are called the Songs of Ascent. And for hundreds of years, for generations back, you would sing these songs as you started to go up the hill to Jerusalem. So it's kind of this tradition, this deep-rooted tradition that you would sing these words and these tunes that reminded you of where you were coming from, the depths of where you're coming from, into this high holy place of Jerusalem. And so imagine this, right? You're walking, there's dust flying everywhere, there are animals and livestock ready to be offered, and people, men, women, all different ages. And as you enter through Jericho, and as you start to climb the hill, you start hearing the familiar tunes that you would have sung growing up with your mother and father and your grandma and grandpa. And I want to read you one of the songs that they would have sang. This is Psalm 123. This is the third song of ascent. It would have been sung on early on in the journey. And it says this, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So imagine you are a Jewish people who in all you have known is slavery being under currently under the Roman rule. And as, you, and as you rise up to Jerusalem, you cry out, God, have mercy on us. And the crowd is singing with you, have mercy on us. We are tired of the contempt and the pride of those who are ruling over us. And so as a people, you are lyrically and melodically crying out for the mercy of God. And this is where our story takes place. So I want you to imagine and and, and sense the scenes as they're going up and hearing these cries, these songs of mercy. In Mark 10, verse 46, it says this, Then they came up to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Undoubtedly, probably not able to get over the sound of the crowd who are singing these songs, who are just talking and, and yelling. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. What a scene. What a scene for Bartimaeus, this blind beggar in the midst of these Jewish pilgrims going to Jerusalem. By the way, would have been a really profitable time as a beggar because in Jewish law, you were required to give alms to to the poor, to the beggars. But because it was before Passover and they're about to give sacrifices, everyone's trying to get in their extra bonus points. 
And you just have just a sheer amount of people. This is kind of a a big moment for this guy named Bartimaeus. But Bartimaeus is sitting on the side, and he knows this is going to probably be his most lucrative week of the year in what he's going to bring in and provide for himself. And all through the crowd, he starts to hear, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And as he sits there and he can't see anything, but he's hearing and smelling and, and sensing what's going on, just begins to start shouting, Son of David, which is, a, which is a term that was used for the coming Messiah. So in that statement, he's, he's already proclaiming who he believes Jesus to be. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. As, as Jesus approaches closer, closer, his disciples run and says, quiet. Don't bother the master. By the way, this is the third time his disciples have done this in the past couple chapters. The first is with children, right? Hey, don't bother the master. Stay downstairs in the basement, right? <laughs> little, little guilt trip there, just kidding. <laughs> but first with children, and Jesus rebukes his disciples, says, no, let them come to me. A matter of fact, you have to become like them to enter the kingdom of God. Next, there's this disciple who's casting out demons, but he's not part of the 12. And so they tell, they tell on Jesus, they tell it on him on Jesus, like, he's not one of us, tell him to stop. And Jesus is like, tell him to stop, he's casting out demons. And then here comes Bartimaeus, the third time in the past couple chapters where his disciples go to this blind man, they hear him calling for Jesus, and they just go, shh, stop, quiet. Why would his disciples be so adamant about shutting all of these people up? Well, it's because his disciples know that when he enters into Jerusalem, it's the time for him to become king. So you can imagine as they get closer to Jerusalem, their anticipation of the kingdom that's going to be coming through their Messiah who they've been following is coming. And so they don't want anything stopping this mission. They don't want anything stopping what is about to happen in this triumphal entry where they are convinced he's about to overthrow the Roman Empire and what they have been praying for and longing for for hundreds of years is about to be fulfilled. He can't be bothered by children and then some of his non-disciples and then this blind beggar. Why are you bothering him? But Jesus says, stop. Call to him. He hears, and he hears the cry for mercy, Eliyahu, son of David, Eliyahu, mercy, have mercy on me. So three things we're going to be walking through this text tonight as we observe this idea of mercy. Number one, mercy is messy. Mercy is so messy. Number two, Mercy is mission. Mercy is the mission of Jesus. And thirdly, mercy is modeled. It's not, we don't find many teachings on mercy, but we find an example in almost every chapter of the Gospels on mercy. It's modeled for his disciples. So let's, let's go through number one. Mercy is messy. So here we are again, back in the story. And so as he cries for mercy and Jesus stops, what is Bartimaeus' response? Well, it says two things. Number one, he takes his cloak and throws it aside. Now, there's three things we need to know about this scenario that the early, the early audience would have immediately picked up. Number one, his robe would, and because it mentions his father, would have been given to him by his father. It's his link to his heritage. 
And for a Jewish man, heritage is everything. Secondly, that cloak, not only was the clothes that he would wear, it was the blanket that he would have on in the cool spring nights. It was his shelter. It was everything for him. And lastly, the cloak would be laid out on the ground, and this is where you would give and donate your, um, your alms as you'd pass by. So imagine this. This blind man can't see a thing. Here's the dust getting kicked up. Here's the songs of ascent. Here's Jesus coming and just starts calling, Eliehu, mercy, son of David, have mercy on me. And then finally, after trying to be being shut up, the disciples say, the master wants to see you. And what does he do? He takes his cloak, his heritage, his safety and comfort, and his provision and throws it away. He just tosses it aside. You know how hard it would be a blind person in a crowd to go and recover all that money? There's a recklessness about this, this messiness about this response to mercy because in this moment, there's something more that he wanted than safety or provision. What he needed at a core level was mercy, something he could not get anywhere else but from Jesus. The next thing that happens besides throwing the cloak is as he jumps to his feet. Now, I don't know if you could imagine a blind man running in a crowd of people. Messy, <laughs> right? My three-year-old runs with looking behind him, and it's caused many injuries. <laughs> like, it's not, not an encouraged sport in our house. But for him... It's just that he just, Jesus jumps to his feet with joy. You can imagine the stumbling, trying to find where is this Jesus. There's, there's nothing about this that's put together or planned or strategic. It's just a mess. Because the mercy was so, he was so desperate for it. They didn't care about the mess. I, I remember, um, I remember when I was just got engaged, and I think I've told this story a while ago. Um, the next day, we're driving to San Diego, and we had two cars. Jen's driving hers, I'm driving mine. We're about to go announce to my family that we are, in fact, engaged. And we're driving out of Long Beach from a friend's wedding on the 405 freeway, and my car engulfs in flames. By the way, 85 Honda Accord, just a pristine, classic not something you want to see burning on the side of the freeway, right? Um, so my 85 Honda Accord is just, just as I smoke starts coming through the dash, I'm like, that's, that's not normal. <laughs> Pulled over, and in a matter of seconds, it's like, Whoa. I'm like, ah, so I get out. <laughs> that's not normal. And um, keep in mind, I just proposed the day before. I'm 20 years old. I'm a janitor at a church trying to fool this girl into thinking I'm man enough to marry her. And I did what every, every man would do, and I called my mom. And I just called her and just said, I'm like, I'm like hey, mom, uh, my car is burning on the freeway right now. She's like, what do you mean? She's like, I'm, like, I, I'm like, I don't know. I, like, I bought this car for like 300 bucks, right? So it, it, did, it served its purpose. And, and so immediately, out of my desperation, I began to beg my mom. I'm like, Mom, you guys have three cars. Is there any way you could give me one of my old ones? Because I don't have savings. I don't have any way of getting a car, right? I don't know who let me marry this woman. But I had, like, nothing planned. And so I'm calling. I'm, like, begging. I'm like, please give me one of your old ones. And this is my mom's response. She's like, oh, you know what? I just entered a raffle. 
So if we win a new car, I'll give you one of my old ones. And I'm like, thanks. That does not help me at all. She's like, you know those raffles in the mall? I'm like, mom, this is not, this is not helpful. True story, that Friday, five days later, she calls me. She's like, hey, guess what? We just won a car in a raffle. So if you ever want some prayer, just ask my mom. She's got it down. I don't know how she does it. So immediately, my begging continues again. Oh, remember what you said, Mom? You said if you won, you'd give me one of your old cars. Please give me one of your old cars. I need, I need a car to get to work, to make money, to provide for my future wife. And, and she kind of plays with me a couple of minutes. And afterwards, she's like, hey, you know what? Your dad and I talk. We're just going to give you the new car as a wedding present. I was blown away. And uh, it's the car. I literally drove here tonight, 13 years later, 220,000 miles later. This car is still going strong. It's, it's the most annoying orange PT Cruiser lookalike you've ever seen. And I love it. I love this car. But there was this moment in, in, in my life where I realized I did not have the resource or the ability to get what I needed. So I cried for help. I cried for mercy. And in that moment, my, my earthly parents gave me something I could never have done on my own. And to this day, I'm living in that blessing because of that. And I think about, you know what? This, this is, what a great picture of mercy. There will be moments. Now, here's the thing. As people who live on the coast in San Diego, you have fooled most people into thinking you can do it on your own. But no one believes you here. What we can't. Every one of us comes to these moments, these walls, where we just realize my best is not enough. What then? Mercy. It's, it's the moments when you cry out and you just say, God, I have done everything I know how to do and I have failed again. I'm not strong enough. I'm too tired. I'm not smart enough or wise enough. God, I don't know what to do. And in that moment, whether you know it or not, you are crying out for mercy. Help me. And it's messy. It's the, it's the confession of the brokenness within you. But it's in that call, it's in that desire, and in that messiness where you call for mercy that God responds in this dramatic and profound way that's sustains you way more than 13 years on the road. It sustains you for eternity. It's this mercy that I love in Lamentations 3. says it's new every single morning. Okay, if you guys walk away with one thing tonight, could you walk away with that? His mercy is new every single morning. You can never wear out God's mercy. You can never question if God's mercy is going to be enough as confident as you are that the sun will rise tomorrow and as confident you are in the cross, his mercy will be present. I love in Lamentation 3, it says, "Great, your, your mercies are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. Did you know the faithfulness of God is as constant as the mercy of God and the mercy of God is as constant as the faithfulness of God? They cannot be separated. That as faithful as God is, is as merciful as he is. This is why David in Psalm 51, after he commits the most horrific sin of his life, opens up and starts to write a song with the opening line of this, have mercy on me, O God. I have nothing left. 
According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And I just, before we move on, I just, we just have to recognize that in this room right now, there are people, and you, you aren't even asking for God's mercy because you feel like you don't deserve it. But do you see how backwards that is? If you felt like you deserve it, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be some sort of reward. It would be some sort of performance-based reaction. No, no, mercy comes into those and in the spaces that you feel like you have no reason to ask for it at all. And mercy comes and it shows up. And maybe you're here tonight and all you need to know is that whether you think you deserve it or not, mercy's here. And it'll be here tomorrow morning and the next day and the next day. It's messy. But not only is mercy messy, it's also Jesus' mission. So think about the disciples again, right? They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're, they're beginning the ascent from Jericho up to the holy city. And as they're doing this, you can imagine they're, like, the anticipation's building. Like, oh man, here comes Jesus. He's about to become king and have his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Jesus hears this blind beggar crying out for mercy. And in the midst of thousands of people marching alongside him, he just says, stop. I mean, let's not move beyond the reality of how hard it would be to stop a crowd of that size. Have you guys ever been to like a concert or a sporting event where the game's over, the concert's done, and you're moving with the sea of people and you realize like, if I trip, I die. <laughs> like it's, the, it's, the, you know, it's Black Friday at Walmart. Like it's just like, this is the kind of crowd that we're thinking of. And Jesus hears this faint cry in the distance for mercy and he just stops. Call him, bring him to me. And the frustration in his disciples over the past few chapters is so evident because they're like, why are we stopping again? Why are we having another stop? And Jesus in this moment, I can imagine him just being like, you don't get it. You think this is disrupting the mission when mercy is the mission. This is the last recorded miracle in all of the synoptic gospels because it's a definite statement to the early audience in the church. This is why he came. It's for a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And the reason why Mark records his name is most scholars believe that he did not stop following Jesus. He continued to be a prominent figure in the early church. When Mark mentions his name, it's for the purpose of saying, you know Bartimaeus, this is his story. And so as for his disciples to come across this, and they're just, and they're just, they're, they're, they're begging, you can imagine begging Jesus, like, can, can we just keep going? We're so close. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is it. Mercy is it. This is why I came. This is why I'm going to the cross. It's for the blind beggar on the side of the road that you think is him, but really it's you. You're all a bunch of blind beggars that don't have the ability to create the life you're longing to have. It's only because of a merciful God. This is why Paul in his letter to the church in Ephesus writes it like this. It says, but because of his great love for us, God who's rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's because there's a God who's rich in mercy that you've been saved. It's the mercy of God, the mission of God that drew him to the cross. 
Thomas Merton, who is this incredible author, he was a, he was a Catholic monk, he wrote, he wrote it like this, there is not a flower that opens, not a seed that falls into the ground, and not an ear of wheat that nods on the end of its stalk, and the wind that does not preach and proclaim the greatness and the mercy of God to the whole world. For Thomas Merton, he says, all of creation is telling the story of mercy. Just look around. Look around and you cannot help but see the mercy of God. Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher in, in, in London uh, over 100 years ago, wrote, wrote, I'm sorry, writes it like this. God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. I mean, just think about that the next time you're at like, you know, 8th Street Lookout, you're at Swami's. You, says, no, the, the God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water. Just the next time you see the ocean, view it as the mercy of God more expansive than that. And the last thing this evening is that this mercy that's messy, this mercy that is the mission of God, is a mercy that has to be modeled. It's an interesting thing to, to give a sermon on mercy when I'm convinced it's something you can't learn about. It's something you have to experience. You ever heard the, the phrase, caught not taught, when it comes to parenting? Children catch more than what you teach them. They observe, which is frightening. It's why my children are slightly crazy. Um, <laughs> It all makes sense now. But mercy is modeled. Jesus models mercy for his disciples again and again and again. And something happens here that is so profound. Here are the disciples, right, pushing aside these moments of mercy so they could finally get to Jerusalem. But what they didn't realize is that at Jerusalem, they would find a, a savior and a Messiah that would be on a cross. And they betray him and abandon him and run for their selfish lives. And after Jesus raises from the dead, you know what he shows them? Mercy. You're still in, Peter, John, Thomas. You're still in. Here's more mercy. The whole time they're trying to rush Jesus past mercy so he can get to a point and all of a sudden they realize that the mercy they were trying to hurry Jesus from is the mercy they needed more than anything else. They finally got it. They encountered mercy. How do I know this? Because two months later, 60 days later from this moment roughly, Peter and John have a similar situation. Listen to this in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer and at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Sound familiar, right? When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Listen to Peter. This is the same guy who's hurrying people away, pushing people away. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then, then Peter said, look at us. 
I think it's one of the most profound statements. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went to the temple he went into the temple courts walking and jumping and praising God. Here's, here's Peter and John who both are recipients finally understood that the mercy of God was for them. They're the beggars. They're the lame. They're the broken who desperately needed mercy. So when they were going about their, their normal business, just two months later, they walk across and here's another beggar. And rather than shushing him and moving him along and going about their mission, it says they stop and Peter looks at him. And I love it. It says, look at me. The dignity in that moment that Peter's bestowing on this beggar who would have been invisible to culture is profound. And then after he proclaims healing over him, he doesn't just walk away. He gives him his right hand and helps him up. Because as he's doing this, his ankles and legs regain strength. This is a man who finally got mercy, not because he heard a sermon, but because he experienced it. He experienced the mercy of God. My friends, we we have to get this. We will not become like Jesus in his mercy until we have received the mercy of Jesus for ourselves. We will not become ambassadors and agents of mercy if we don't first become recipients of it. We have to understand this is desperately what we need. Rick Warren, a pastor up in Orange County, writes it like this, God's mercy to us is the motivation for showing mercy to others. Remember, you will never be asked to forgive someone else more than God has forgiven you. Oh, man. All all three gatherings today, this sermon... It just kind of hits me so hard because I just, I think so much of my life, I'm, I'm just being honest right now, I spend trying to please God that sometimes I'm blinded to my own humanity and failures and I make excuses. And the reality is in, the moment, in moments like this, I just realize, man, none of that matters if it's not for the mercy of God. I desperately need the mercy of God. I'll leave you with this story as as Pat comes up and begins to play. Um, When we were at the conference, I got to hear from a pastor. I wish I could remember his name, but um, he's a pastor in Brooklyn. And he tells this incredible story about the mercy of God. And as he's there, he starts, and you can tell when he walks up on stage that he has some deformity in his face. And he, gets to, and he starts to tell the story that when he was born, he was born without an ear. Um, sorry, without his left ear, without his left jaw, and the mouth, the hole in his mouth was way too wide. And as he grew up, after multiple surgeries, taking one of his ribs and putting it as his jawbone, uh, artificially putting an ear on his face, 
sewing up the too big of a hole that was in his mouth. You can still see the deformity, but it's so much better. And he tells this story of what it was like growing up as a kid and people just looking at you, half curious and half in horror. He tells a story after he got married. His wife went to give him a kiss and immediately she says, stop, stop that. He says, not what you want to hear when you are kissed. (laughs) And she says, every time I go to kiss the left side of your face, you pull away. Stop that. And he had no idea he was even doing it. And in that moment, he began to realize that he only wanted to give his wife the lovable parts of him. He only wanted his wife to kiss the parts of him he felt presentable. And in this moment, his wife said, don't you think I see this? I love all of who you are. And she says, I want you just to sit there In this moment, she begins to trace the scars on his face, his ear and his jaw, and begins to start kissing his face. And he says, as as she's doing this, rage starts to build up within him, this uncontrollable anger. Who do you think you are to touch that part of me that no one's allowed to touch? He says that she just continues to kiss his face until finally that rage gives way to grief and he just weeps. He talks about in this moment, he says, my wife showed me the gospel. It's the mercy of God. It doesn't meet the part of us that we choose to show him or those on ch- at church, our, our loved ones. No, he loves The scars and the wounds and the ugliness of who you are, that is where the mercy of God intersects our life. It's in that space that Lamentations 3 writes. If you ever read Lamentations, it's awful. It's just chapter for chapter of doom and gloom. It's so depressing. And right in the middle of that, it talks about mercy. That's new every single morning is thy faithfulness. So would you do me a favor? Would you bow your heads with me tonight? As you bow your heads, I'm going to invite you. Would you put your hands in your lap as if you're going to receive from God? And just for a moment, I want you to just, I want you to become aware of the places in your life you don't like to think about. Maybe that hidden sin. Maybe that habit that is hurtful to your loved ones. Maybe that thing in your past you've chosen to forget. And we're not going to stay here long, but I want you to become aware of it for a moment. And right now, we're going to ask if the mercy of God meets us, all of us, and who we are fully, authentically before God. Don't hide. Some of you right now are tempted to not do this exercise because you don't know what to expect. Don't hide. Let God's mercy meet you.
before I pray, I have this picture of a, of a door that's shut, that's been locked, and that you've thrown away the key. In Revelations, it says, I stand at the door and knock. God will not kick down the door. He's asking to come in. He's asking to come in and meet you. And you don't have to be afraid because what he's going to meet you with is mercy. Eliejo. So with every eye closed, I'm just going to go ahead and pray. And I'm just going to ask Pat just to sing this song for a minute and that we would just posture our hearts to receive his mercy tonight. Father, we come. All the ugliness, all the fear, all the disappointment, all the joy and pain that we carry in this life, the the true us that we might not even be familiar with, we bring it to you tonight. And God, like Bartimaeus, we cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Father God, have mercy on me. I have failed you. I have hurt others. I have have not trusted you with my heart and my life. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, mercy. We thank you, God, tonight for your mercy. Lord, I pray that this would not just be a moment, but I pray that as we wake up in the morning that we would be reminded, just blaring in our souls, Lamentations 3, Lord, that your mercy is brand new. And so are we. Thank you for meeting with us tonight. Jesus, thank you for modeling mercy towards us. Lord, I pray that you would let us be a people of mercy. Lord, that we would be able to show mercy towards others because you've shown mercy towards us. Thank you for the cross. Lord, where justice and mercy meet. Lord, that you are just and merciful, but thank you because of the cross, mercy has triumphed over judgment. Love you so much, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com.